0: how can you get to a place where you feel optimistic, you feel good, even though there's lots of craziness going on and you don't have an awful lot of the answers, you're still in a good place to be able to face into them.
1: You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm J.R. Flatter, and as usual, I'm here with my co-host, Lucas. Hello. I'm in Las Vegas this week at the Society for Human Resource Management Conference. So you can imagine all the excitement with all these HR folks running around. Actually, twenty plus thousand come to the city. Yeah, it's an amazing show. We're here with our distinguished guest, Russell Harvey.
0: Hello, hello.
1: There's an eight-hour time difference between you and me, Russell. So it's just after eight in the morning here. And normally, when I'm on the west coast or east coast, it's plus five. So I'm just assuming it's plus
0: eight.
1: So one o'clock in the afternoon for you.
0: Yeah, it's actually it's four o'clock here. For oh, me.
1: okay, so. Given the time change, okay.
0: Yeah, but time zones—they are, are really confusing. Even sometimes, just the one hour—one with Europe—it can be so much back and forth. Of like, I thought we we're meeting at twelve. Now we said one, and you know, it just—it goes around in circles forever, essentially. <laughs> and then we have daylight savings to oh, add, yeah. or oh yeah,
2: one. You know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we've, this is a global cohort. It's, so I'll just remind everybody, all of our listeners and viewers, uh, leaders of complex organizations from across the globe different cultures, different ethnicities. So we're we're across Sydney, Ireland, now you and others in the UK. Yeah, so we're struggling with those time zones all the time. We teach at 5 o'clock in the evening on the East Coast because it's, depending on the time of year, anywhere between 7 and 9 a.m. in Sydney. So they're getting up and we're finishing our day. So, uh, Russell, uh, leaders of complex organizations that are trying to compete and succeed in the 21st century in this global labor market, with all of the things going on, we're well into the 21st century now, almost a quarter of the way through this first century, and you have a topic in your uh, life that's near and dear to Lucas and I, and that's all about resilience. As my thinking continues to mature, and I'm looking at this relationship between resilience and perhaps grit and vulnerability, because we're asked in the 21st century, be vulnerable, but also we need to be resilient. So I want to pass over to you and let you, first of all, brag about yourself. I know that's probably challenging for most of us, but tell us about this great work that you're doing that I'm seeing here on your website, and on your LinkedIn profile. Thank you, thank you.
0: Well, I'll try it yeah, so so I am brilliant, I am amazing no yeah that doesn't work you know i'm british it's like my insides have just turned to jelly you know it's like it is fantastic when you do different work in the states than the uk when you know yes you ask people to just when they walk into the room in the states people come up and shake your hand and go hello let, this is my name so and so let me tell you about yourself and in the uk they literally just walk in the room and give you a nod you know it's it's brilliant It's amazing. So I am the resilience coach, you know, fancy marketing, not any old resilience coach, the resilience coach. And I describe. I am a coach and a facilitator. That's who I am. That's what I do. Good mate of mine. The one I was just talking about off air that I went to Vegas with recently. He did say it's a bit of a sidebar the last year of like, you're just you all the time, Russell, which is nice because that was an intention of mine. Be authentic. Just be me all of the time. So how The Resilience Coach came about. So I've always been interested in human behavior. I think, you know, from the moment I could sort of walk and talk, I think I've been curious about human beings and why they do the things that they do. So it took me a a little while to get there, but most of my career has been in learning leadership and organizational development. And how The Resilience Coach came about is that my last permanent role was at a company called the Cooperative Group in Manchester. So there are co-ops all over the world, and it's a particular way of running a business. It's a highly value-based business system, which I loved. However, not long after I joined it, it got itself into a pickle financially, nothing to do with me, but it literally got to the stage where the business was about to just come to an end, and it had been around for 180 years. So all of my internal clients literally are coming to you with their heads in their hands going... Russell, well, what on earth would we do? The world has fallen on our heads. And I went, well, there's this word called resilience and there's a lovely acronym called VUCA, which I presume that you are familiar with. And I went, our answers are in there. Our, our solution, solutions are in there. So in terms of just working with them on actually... How can you get to a place where you feel optimistic, you feel good, even though there's lots of craziness going on and you don't have an awful lot of the answers, you're still in a good place to be able to face into them. That's what I was working upon. And then when I left the co-op and I did some navel gazing around, it's time to go out by myself, which was eight years ago next month. It's like, who am I? What am I doing? I went, actually, do you know what? I am the resilience coach. I have spent the last number of years talking about it, so... How to lead yourself and others well in a full on crazy world. It's something that I'm having a go at specializing in, but also learning all of the time, every conversation with every client, every company to go, well, this is supposed to be the answer. That does work. It doesn't work. And if that doesn't work, what else could we try? Live in Leeds, married, gorgeous wife, no kids. Uh, we love to travel. So, you know, just as much as humanly possible, we like to travel in the pandemic. Did have an impact upon that, but now we will be going to Australia in the summer to see family. So that's me, essentially. Or well, that's today's answer to that question.
1: So it's going to be winter when you get there if you're leaving in your UK summer. So.
0: It is. Yeah. Yes. I yeah, made yes.
1: a mistake the other day. Uh, we have, as I stated, when we're out there, we have a global cohort, and we were taking a two-week break in July, and I made a mistake of saying we're taking a summer break. My Australian friends jumped in and quickly said, no, 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 it's not summer.
0: And we really are having a heat wave in the UK right now. So I'm really not trying to complain. It's just that we would just like a tiny bit of rain, please. It's like, I'm not complaining, but the heavens, can you could you just give us a little bit of water is all we want.
1: <laughs> well, tell us what a heat wave is in Leeds, because I think it's probably a bit, bit
0: different than some right, of so it's Right, so it's like 28 degrees, 29, you know, so yes. We're not used to that, essentially. And some random thing that just come up on a feed about the wettest place in the United Kingdom, their biggest river is almost dried up. So we're just like, okay, that's not good. So
1: tell us a little bit about Buka. You mentioned that acronym. Uh, Is that a a central piece of your framework for coaching?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I take a strengths-based approach and it it is really all about working with clients on, you know, what does a resilient them look like, sound like, and feel like? But then part of that is just trying to get people to think differently about the lovely sentence of change is constant. So, you know, the food piece, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. It's it's we're saying change is constant. There's always something going on somewhere that could impact you at some stage. And when you walk into a room full of people and you say change is constant, they're just gonna go, yeah, we know. And duh. And so it's then using the VUCA model to go, can we really unpick and understand how come their change is persistent? There's something always going on somewhere. But then the next bit, and linking it, the resilience is, I also say, and some things are always going to stay the same. So let's have a really great conversation about what's staying the same as for you. And to start with, that's actually their strengths, their skills, their capabilities, their attitude, or what could they develop that stayed the same that would be really useful, really helpful for them, really worthwhile, that they could always hang their hat on or give them a sense of grounding. So even though it might be full-on crazy, they can actually go, do you know what, I am aware of all of these things that have stayed the same or I am working on staying the same because they're useful to me, they're helpful to me, they're worthwhile to me. And for that, for me, is how I link the resilient human piece in you know, change is constant, but actually let's support you about what can we make sure and grow for you that stays the same, that's useful, worthwhile, helps you, helps you face into the world, helps you be in this lovely place called thrive rather than just hanging on. So there's a huge amount of sort of buzzwords that I, I feel like I use. So I, I do always try and, and then I go, but what we mean by that is, you know, because, you know, thriving, coping and surviving – I think we, sometimes there's a risk that when people are coping and surviving, they believe that they are being resilient, but sometimes they're not. They might be using their, you know, some resiliency skills or they might be depleting some of their resilience, but actually if they can shift themselves predominantly into a thrive place, then that's where the true resilience is. And that's why I like to define resilience as springing forward with learning. I'd just like to challenge this idea of bounce back, you know, because, you know, life happens to us, and if we say, right, that happened, and I'll go back to how it was, I'm sitting there as a coach going, well, hang on a minute, let's, let's just see what you learned from it, you know, what could you take away from it? So to be able to spring forward with learning, you need from all of Dice's experiences, whether good or not so good, to pause and re-energize and reflect. And in those reflections, it's the learnings to go, actually, from my recent experiences, what am I going to keep and what am I going to leave behind because it didn't work for me? So perpetually finding a way that's useful and worthwhile for you to spring forward learning, That's for me, is where people then get actually into the resilience space, in my humble opinion.
1: Yeah, a lot of common themes between what you're describing and what Lucas and I think and teach coaching we are always thinking about looking forward and growing. and I heard you use both of those words.
2: You said something that resonated with me where um, you're just you all of the time. And, and we're as coaches, we're always trying to cultivate that self-awareness and getting people to, you know, be recognize their strengths and things that they could learn and grow and improve on. So how do you, see that self-awareness piece adding in like enriching the conversations around resiliency? So
0: I have to keep talking about my own sort of personal lived experience. So I know that I'm privileged. You no, know, it is the, the white male, you know, nice, lovely family background, got a good education, things like that. You know, there, there were some challenges growing up in the fact that it took me a while to find my niche. So at school, education wise, just my own sort of teenage version of working out how I like to learn. So I went to grammar school and it was like end of year exams, but I did well throughout the year, but failed all of my end of year exams. It was just working at that early age and sitting in like the headmaster's imposing office at a grammar school with like the cape on. If you imagine a bit of a Hogwarts headmaster, it it was, it was a bit like that. And I've been sitting there, it was you know, brilliant headmaster, but sort of going, so, Russell, how come you failed all your exams? And me sort of saying, yeah, I, I can't regurgitate all the information. I'm not good at exams. And they'll tell you all of like, yeah, you've got to revise. And So it just was like three years on the trial of being in the headmaster's office and going, I told you, I, I'm no good at exams. And then actually when you could go on to sixth form or college, me making the decision to actually go, do you know what? Continuing to educate myself in the same way, He's not working for me, so I need to take ownership and responsibility. So I remember I went to a college rather than staying in school as the open day and to sort of see if this was a different type of learning that worked for me. And they sort of said, "We well, don't do exams here. Uh, it is actually about coursework throughout the year. And I remember that I signed up there and then. And I rang my dad from a telephone box because mobiles weren't around then. I'm old, Um, uh, and I said, "Right, I've signed up. Brilliant!" And I was all excited. And I remember his response at the end of the phone, which was like, "Um, "I thought you were just going to check the place out." And and I was like, "Oh no, I've signed up. I'm coming. It's this year. I'm doing it." So, in my small way, you know, really understanding how actually uh, how I like to learn and what works for me, but some of the things that I needed to do. And then, actually, career-wise, before I realised I wanted to be in learning and development, doing lots of different roles which weren't quite learning and development, and felt like I was batting my head against the brick wall. And then, when I did get learning and development roles, because when a company goes into trouble, learning and development is the first to get cut, being made redundant six times throughout the course of my career. And then, it's sort of going, okay, you know, i have to come home and tell girlfriend, and then the wife right? We're back down to one salary again. But all of it was with, I know inside me, I had a purpose that there's actually a particular way that I want to do this thing called learning development. And it took me quite a long time to go, actually, it's coaching and facilitation, you know, and it's, it just took a while for me to work that out. And when I got there, you know, I flew, I was like, ah, it's all, you know, gone into place now. And then throughout all of that, As you start to do, like learning development career, I did buy into the fact of like, well, you've got to be a role model. You know, you you have to, when people, when you stand in front of others for credibility and you facilitate an event and people sort of say, what have you done? You have to have good answers for that. You know, you have to have lived experience, good answers around, this is what I've done when I had this challenge. This is how I came about it. This is what I was feeling. This is what I was thinking. So standing up in front of others and talking about your feelings isn't necessarily something that people find easy. Uh, And then running a business for eight years, that's not dead simple. (laughs) You know, it's got its ups and downs. The pandemic was a challenge, but it's eight years old uh, next month is the resilience coach. So most small businesses fail within the first few years. So I've come out the other side. It's grown and it's growing again. And and you have to do all those things about being a resilient human to make your business grow and flourish. So hopefully I'm role modeling as much as possible around these different aspects of being resilient.
1: So you you mentioned something a minute ago about your strengths-based approach. And... This is more for my own insights and maybe for our listeners and viewers. I struggle with that because I have some significant strengths, but I also have some significant weaknesses. And if I ignore them, especially if I'm a one-man show, you're, you're talking about entrepreneurship and perhaps even working in the freelance market. If I'm starting a coaching business, hanging my shingle, as we might say in America, can I ignore my strengths? Or ignore my weaknesses and just focus on my strengths? And how do I do that?
0: So traditionally, I'm not so sure what it's like in the, in the U.S., but mostly in the United Kingdom, when we talk about, you know, this is what you're good at, and then these are all your development areas, we have the risk then that we spend too much time focusing on the things that we don't like doing and de-energize us and bring us down. So that's why I really like the strengths-based approach. So, and this is a, massive light bulb moment to huge amounts of my clients. When I say, look, we're going to do this psychometrical strength scope. There's 24 strengths. Clever people and I have come up with the fact that these things that energizes, we enjoy doing them. So three of my significant uh, seven strengths are strategic mindedness, big picture, collaboration, working with others, and developing others. Being a coach, I'm energized by those, you know, I love doing them. So that's me at my best. So to start with, it is to go to say to everybody, find out what you naturally really enjoy doing and do more of that because it builds natural resilience and natural confidence, you know? Then everybody, everybody straight away, every time you show them, they sort of, there's this wheel of like what their strengths profile is and you've got these lengths of these, you know, bars. Whilst it's not about that, their eyes go to the short bars, and they go. Oh, so that—that's my development. I go, no, 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 stop, stop. I said to start with, forget about that. And they go, but 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 I'm supposed because it used to be the case of um, these are things that you're really good at, so you're good at those. So stop doing them and focus on these things that you aren't. So imagine. So this was a conversation there with my dad. So nothing against him. But it was a case of like when I was doing my um, O-levels at school, so my high school things, and he would sort of say, oh, okay, so tell us about human biology. I loved human biology. So I would go, oh, yeah, brilliant. Mr. Nichols, great teacher. I, I understand topics, brilliant. I've got this extra homework. I'm going to go and do it now. Then he'd go, okay, you've got good grades in that. Tell us about the chemistry. Oh, you've got low grades in chemistry. And I would go, yeah, ooh, hmm, not sure about that. Me and the teacher just look at each other and go, we know that we both don't get on and don't understand this, and on. I hate walking towards chemistry. And it goes, right then. Okay, so human biology you love. You've nailed that. Forget that. What we're going to do in the holidays is you're going to go to chemistry school. And I was like, why, why do you hate me? What, what have I done? <laughs> you know? So you do need to be aware of the things that you don't enjoy doing, and so they, you know, it's limiting weaknesses, but then that's when you compensate for them. So that's when you put just some, either you ask for help in those moments or you consider how you could bring your strengths to help you with the things that you don't enjoy doing. And it's also, if you can't do either of those two things, just some, develop some habits. So the thing that I enjoy doing the least is detail if you ask me to do detail, it's like you've burst my balloon and I've withered inside. However, I'm aware of that uh, and go, right, in this moment in time, I'm going to have to do lots of detail. I do have to do it by myself. So these are the habits that I put in place, you know, to help myself do detail in that moment. But the majority of the time, I'm aiming to harness the things that I enjoy doing naturally because I'm good at them and it's me at my best and that is keeping me as much as humanly possible in a good place and it's a massive light bulb moment for a huge amount of my clients they sort of go so you don't you don't want me to work on the little bar no you you want me to do more of the thing that I love doing and they go yes and they go well isn't that brilliant
2: and speaking of resiliency and you know hearing your story of you know, this school works for me and this school doesn't. I'm watching this documentary about the 2008 Olympic basketball U.S. team, and they were talking about how their challenge was taking NBA basketball and then adapting to international basketball where there's different rules, there's different team structures, you know. It's almost like a whole different game. So I want to talk about, are there some aspects of resiliency that's kind of adapting to the organization
0: like kind of from that perspective i guess totally so one of the specific dimensions of being resilient is the lovely word of adaptability so the short answer is yes it's it's significantly about adaptability to is part of being resilient and so if you look on my website i've got the resilience wheel so there's seven aspects seven dimensions to being resilient and one of them is adaptability and the resilience wheel, it's just something I put together and it's a build upon proper research from Robertson Cooper and others. There's also some research that shows that the adaptability element of being resilient is slightly more significant. Because it shows so adaptability is openness to change, which I'm sure we've, you know. So it's really considering everybody that's listening now about what changes do you like, how much you like change, which changes you're okay with, which changes you're not okay with, really understanding that. And then the research shows that those people that spend a third of their time working upon their adaptability, they actually appear to get themselves into this place called Thrive that we talk about, you know. So they're open and they're curious. So clearly, the fact that the US basketball team was aware that's what they needed to do, brilliant, great, because they didn't go down the route of we're going to make what we know, we're going to force it upon to these circumstances. We know that we need to adapt our experiences to something else because if we don't, we'll fail, you know? So I would guess, I would imagine, you know, that part of the conversation is, you know, what do we need to do to win the gold medal? So they'll look at themselves, strengths and weaknesses, you know, how do we compensate for it? When are we at our best? And, well, actually, we've noticed all the rules are different. Actually, so we're going to have to be adapting ourselves. So organizationally, absolutely, as an individual organization, it is considering how much you want to adapt to the organization's culture that doesn't necessarily take away from your own personal value system. That's to struggle a lot of time with individuals. So quite a lot of my coaching clients sort of go, I do really like my job, but I'm struggling with some of the things the organization does. So then we have to talk about their options and choices, where they are prepared to adapt, where they're not, or is this time for them to leave and to find something else that will align more with their values? And one of the dimensions of being resilient is also having a purpose. So it really is actually figuring out what's their leader, what's their leadership purpose? Do they know it? Can they articulate it? You You know, how much does it link to their life's purpose? And the purpose one is really fascinating to me because as part of being a role model around resilience, I had to have a purpose, you know? So mine is by the year 2025, I want to positively affect 100,000 people. And right now I'm up to about 40,422-ish, okay? When I started, there wasn't the statistics behind it because I was like, I don't do detail but somebody said you need to make it smart russell sm everything has to you know if you've got an object it's like okay so a purpose is a little bit bigger than like objectives but yes i'll put some things to it and then it's really fascinating to just see how people react to that of going gosh i have i got a purpose do you know i know what i'm here for what's the point so it's helpful it's helpful to know what you're direction of travel is what your grounding is what gets you out of bed each day how come you do the things that you do you know when you put all this effort and energy into life what's it against what's it for and so I would imagine that the U.S. basketball team you know the purpose was to win the goal but at the same time I would imagine it's also to get the best from each other it's also we enjoy ourselves we want to look back at our experience around we were a good team we got to know each other I would guess, I would imagine.
1: So, you know, here you are in Leeds, and Lucas is in Virginia. I'm in Las Vegas, and we teach a global cohort and we coach a global cohort. So, give us your thoughts on cross culture, cross generation.
0: An element of it is value systems and purpose. What's collective purpose and collective value system? But I also talk an awful lot about what enables an individual or a team or an organization to get to optimistic. So uh, we often sort of talk about in challenging times, just be positive. And that can really turn into the toxic positivity, which is, you know, not what we want to do. So I, I, I think you may be familiar with this, but the whole optimism piece is coming from the Stockdale paradox, you know, hope for the best and plan for the worst. That's what I'm talking about. So, It's finding some common ground. So when you've got cross cultures and you've got cross generations, you know, you get that room of people together and just go, when we look each other in the eye and we know each other, we understand each other's strengths, our weaknesses that we'll compensate for, how do we get to optimistic? What does that look like, sound like, and feel like? That for me would actually create some common ground. And then it really is then an opportunity to celebrate the differences, which I know we talk about an awful lot. You know, got to have diverse cultures. You've got to celebrate the differences. To start with, we probably don't do enough about celebrating and understanding the diversity of thought of different people in the room. It's like at any time when you you could lay a problem or lay a challenge or lay a picture or something in in front of a room, people, room of people and go, What do you see? You know, we don't do enough of understanding the various responses to that because straight away that's like, Oh, how come you came to it from that place? Or, gosh, how did you see that? Or your brain's thought about it in this way. Wow, isn't, isn't that incredible? How could we harness that? So people listening, in terms of the optimism piece, it's linked to, you know, change is constant, but things stay the same. So think about optimism has got to be in grounded in reality. So, you know, don't bury your head in the sand. When there's a problem, when there's a challenge, you've got to get consensus on what the actual challenges and problems are are and you've just got to be in agreement not to feel downhearted or downbeaten or depressed around oh my god this is our challenge it's just get some consensus on one what's you know the problem we've got to face then it's all about going what are my strengths skills capabilities experiences behaviors attitude And what's everybody else's they've got? And how do we harness all of that so we can feel genuinely hopeful about facing into our challenges? And as a result of that, we get feelings of positivity. So, and just like for me, I quite often walk into a lot of rooms now and go, so how optimistic are you? And see what happens, see where it goes, essentially. And then I'm picking from there got to find the common ground essentially and if it's about your strengths and your skills first because if you sort of talked about common ground around climate change that's when it can turn into a bun fight between the generations can't it going well thanks russell you messed this up for us and i go yeah i know we did i'm sorry (sighs) well what can we do about it essentially
2: also thinking about that that cross-generational, you know, different cultures and and things like that, trying to gain the common ground. As coaches, we're talking to the individuals a lot, right? But we're talking now about like, okay, how do we go from having a group that's kind of in the storming phase to performing well? Do you do that through individual coaching or is there more of like a group-based approach there?
0: So it's it's individual and group on both really. And it is exactly that. It's taking them through those phases, you know, forming, storming, norming, et cetera, et cetera, realising as well that it might be persistently changing as well, people coming in and out. So there's, there is a fundamental core that's going on. And, you know, the risk of repeating myself, it is, it's probably a good point to just keep starting with the purpose and the values. What are we here to do? How come we've all turned up, you know? Uh, and then from that, you'll get to understand people's passions, and enthusiasms and then actually where they would like to, um, contribute. I would also at the same time, which I do do with teams and individuals, I'm going, what does a resilient you or a resilient us look like, sound like and feel like it's like, you need to map that out as in terms of a direction of travel, you know, we, we take the resilient wheel and go when we've got our wheel as our team in a really good place, what have we got, what's happening. What have we done? And what falls out of that is all the stuff that you would expect. And they won't necessarily use the fancy terminology for it, but also say, well, we'll respect each other. You know, we'll talk about no idea is a bad idea. You know, we'll actually really understand each other. We'll, we'll look after each other. You know, we'll, we'll actually understand when they're at their best or they're not feeling great and what they need in that moment. And that essentially is psychological safety, you know? is essentially what you're talking about here. We can talk about anything and it's all right. We can get on. We can, we can have a disagreement and it's fine. So, yeah, what does a resilient team look like, sound like and feel like? And, you know, make sure they put some markers in the stand. And then it's also about totally making sure that people are comfortable with the feedback around what they are and aren't doing around that. So huge amounts of times, I say, right, we've talked about how we're going to have this learning experience. And I ask two questions. I say, we've agreed we're going to do this. This is our map of what we're going to look like. So I always say, are you okay when I tell you all when you're doing that well? And everybody goes, oh, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, yeah. So are you also okay when I share with you and tell you when I don't think you're doing something that we agreed we would do? And everybody sort of goes, eh, yeah okay all right then okay so you have to open that door to go we're gonna share i'm gonna you know gonna take the lead on it but we're also gonna do a good conversation about how well are we doing what are we not doing we agreed with what's on something on here we agreed we would do and we're not doing it
2: yeah our team does retros every two weeks and it's what went well what didn't go well and that's really what I want to hear, what didn't go well. You know,
0: what went well, is that's easy stuff. Well, so this is where this, the strengths-based approach also comes in and trilling, trying to get help people on snacks. So we have negativity bias as humans, as you're, you know, you're well aware. So we do initially want to focus on what didn't go well. But if you can get into the habit, and I know a previous episode was on habits, um, if you can get into the habit of asking first what went well but unpicking how come it went well, what were the strengths, the skills, the capabilities, the attitude mindset that contributed to this going well, you know, and really just make sure that's clear. Then you talk about what didn't, and then you have to link the two. You're going to have to say, okay, so all those things that went well and how come they went well, how many of those things will be useful in making the improvements in these areas? And you, the vast majority of the meetings in the world around organizations start with feel free everybody to, you know, message me if I'm wrong, but they start with Show us, you know, the red boxes on the spreadsheets of the things that aren't right, you know? Show us where the things are down that should be up, you know? They start there. And then suddenly go, Oh gosh, we were told by HR we needed to do celebrate success. Quick, somebody just Just just, Somebody tell me something nice they've done. Well, uh, I went for a walk. Yeah, great. Brilliant. We've done that one. So flip it on its head, essentially. And even if there's only one thing that's gone well, start there. Really understand how come it went well and then see anything there that will help us with what hasn't. Um, Yeah, lessons learned is brilliant. It's like how well do organizations do lessons learned? So my last
1: question, I'm really intrigued by this relationship between resilience and purpose. And I think it speaks very loudly to me personally. I'm in the fifth act of life, if you read Shakespeare. I was a lover and a soldier, and now I'm a justice, telling stories for a living. I got my spectacles here, my round belly. As I went from fourth to fifth, so I stepped out of the CEO chair five, six, seven years ago. I really struggled with who am I now? What do I do now? And I got through that with a coach, a lot of introspection. So talk to us in your coaching practice of that. When you come across someone that's struggling with resilience and has a lack of purpose, I mean, what does that look like?
0: So what it looks like is, I think, potentially what you experienced. It, it's either they are behaviorally coming across or they're specifically overtly saying the sentences of I don't know what I'm doing I don't know why I'm doing it I feel all at sea and I'm not sure what the point is I'm questioning everything so anxiety in some shape or form is is coming to the fore worries concerns so that's first of all it's about recognizing that it's then supporting them to tell the story of their chapters. And there are also an awful lot of the time in terms of career coaching, clients come to us because for the first time ever, they didn't get a job role they went for. Or for the first time ever, somebody's tapped them on the shoulder and gone, you need to go and talk to a coach. You're a bit broken. <laughs> it's just like. What? Okay. That's how a lot of clients come to coaches as well. So you have to unpick that. Or they had their last performance review and they just weren't interested in it. Or they just come away and gone, do you know what? That fire in the belly or why I'm doing this, it's like, eh, it's gone, essentially. So then you have to unpick when they uh, did have their version of a purpose. And it's actually a lot of the time, you know, people don't talk about this word purpose. And, you know, a lot of the time you talk to people, why do do you do something? It's like, well, I do it for my family. You go, yeah, great, absolutely. And so that's where you have to build upon it, you know? So we have to find the sort of, you know, the right questions to help them sort of tease out what gets them out of bed each day. Um, What do they enjoy doing? How come they enjoy doing it? One of the great questions to ask, which they also have to think about, is give us some examples in your life when you felt proud. Of what you've done you know you don't necessarily have to have led it it could have been part of something you could have even been on the periphery of it but it gave you a warm fuzzy feeling inside you know and try and think of some examples about when they've had that feeling of sort of pride worthwhile and then you work with them and I'm picking in terms of what were they doing what was their role in that in that story and then What behaviours, what skills, what strengths, what conversations, what experiences they have. And then you'll have some common core around it. You'll have some common themes. And that could, or most of the time, enables them to say, actually, I've understood. I've gone and looked at the past and understood actually what my purpose is. And yes, actually, I can uh, rekindle that going forward in this new place, this new role. Or actually, that purpose is really not relevant anymore. However, by talking about the old purpose, not relevant, do you know what? I think a bit of a new one is just beginning to emerge around actually what is important to me and what is, you know, relevant to me. And then you can ask other questions as long as they don't sort of sound morbid, but, you know, what you want people to say about you when you're gone, you know, those types of things. If you are to write your own eulogy, you know, what would you like on it, you know, if you want to tell the story of the fifth chapter of your life, what do you want that to be, you know? When somebody's talking about it with sort of bright eyes and enthusiasm or they're talking about it positively, emotively, what do you want those emotions to be? Those could be ways that they would sort of tease that out. You see your mind's definitely going there, junior you've, 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 You're thinking about some of that.
1: Oh, yeah, I have a full page of notes already, Russell. <laughs> so... uh Our tradition is Lucas gets asked the final, uh, on the record question. So we'll chat a little (laughs) bit after we turn the recording off.
2: So you talked a lot about, um, in that answer, you know, finding things that you're proud about, things that kind of give you that joy, that, that feeling of fulfillment. And I've noticed that in my life, um, kind of embracing things that are outside of work in my personal life, hobbies, things like that, like music, art, things, exercise, those have kind of enriched my professional life because I can kind of, okay, I can go and do these things that I find enjoyable and then kind of pick pieces and help, you know, maybe give me some perspective. So I'm curious, uh, Russell, do you have any hobbies or things outside of your profession that you find that kind of feed into your abilities as a coach?
0: Yeah, do you know it's it's a funny one, uh, hobbies because I am I am I don't necessarily have like a real specific hobby. There are lots of things I like to do. So I, for everybody's listening now, I I have been searching for a couple of years for like just give me some ideas about another hobby that I can do. So I read books. I love spending time with my wife. I like to travel. I have a push bike as a local canal to us, so I go out on that when I feel like it. Genuinely, you know, like spending time with friends just that social interaction is there so whilst it might still felt sound like work i've got my own podcast i'm part of a radio station as well and it, it, it's just these are these are things that i do and all of them sort of energize me and in me doing them i'm probably doing some permanent self reflection and go oh yeah i can bring that back into you know the job role the next coaching conversation that i do but I do, I did play instruments as a child, but I didn't, you know, play the uh, piano and trombone, but didn't keep those going. My mate that I've talked about, uh, Richard, that I went to Vakers with recently, he uh, has recently just taken up singing. He's in a choir. I'm not entirely sure if anybody really wants to listen to my singing voice. My wife's a great singer, but that's made me sort of um, think of something. Um, I did as a child growing up. Also, Richard was part of that. was in an amateur dramatics group, so theatre club. So my wife and I have done theatre at times. So some of these things might come back. I don't know. I've got a, a potential idea. And if you see one of those things, if you say it out loud, you'll see. But I didn't know whether to go down the comedy stand-up learning, you know, genuinely to sort of, because I do a bit of public speaking, to just actually try and make that better. That would be my reason for doing it, you know. I absolutely have no idea whether I'm funny or not, you know. That's not why I'm doing it. But I, was like, I just want to understand a bit more about, actually, what, what's, what's comedy? What, what is that? Because maybe I could bring it in and enhance some of the things that I do. So I have enough going on at the minute that I bring back. But I am, on the, I am always on a sort of bit of a perpetual search to go, hmm, what else? what else could it be?
2: No, totally. That search and that experimentation is totally what I'm trying to get at. I think just I think it's amazing that like a uh, fifty-year-old man might take up like karate lessons or something. You know, something just completely out of left field.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't. I don't. Not. Don't think that's going to happen. I think the comedy things are fa- fairly left field. To go right then. You know, I'm a little bit later in life with it. Yes. I also have the belly i do like the occasional drink so let's go out on stage and see what fun i can make for myself be vulnerable there you go that might be it yeah i'd pay
1: a few pounds to see that russell (laughs) let us know know when and where
2: (laughs) okay all right well it's gonna be streaming online actually for millions of people (laughs) (laughs) well
1: that concludes this episode of building a coaching culture i truly hope that this episode was helpful to you if it was be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts maybe stop and give us a rating or review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well thanks again and we'll see you next time